0: But not without casualties among our own meager forces. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies, everywhere. Keep looking, keep watching the
1: skies. Shh.
2: Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we're bringing you the first in a month of us showing you things.
1: Yeah, and this is a this is going to be a month of us kind of showing you the films that were based off of Who Goes There. Mm-hmm.
2: It's a famous short story. But we'll get into that later. That's right. And um, we're starting at the very beginning with uh, The Thing from Another World, sometimes referred to as Just The Thing. It's a 1951 American science fiction horror film directed by Christian Nyby and produced by Edward Lasker for Howard Hawks Winchester Pictures and released by RKO. RKO? (laughs) RKO. Scram, buddy. I was just about to say that. (laughs) Scram, buddy. (laughs) Well, we haven't seen an RKO picture right here yet. (laughs) The film stars Margaret Sheridan, Kenneth Toby, Robert Cornthwaite, and Douglas Spencer. James Arnas plays The Thing, although he is difficult to recognize in costume and makeup due to both low lighting and other effects used to obscure his features. The film, as Chris mentioned a second ago, is based on the 1938 novella Who Goes There, written by John W. Campbell. The film's storyline
1: concerns a U.S. Air Force crew and scientists who find, frozen in the Arctic ice, a crashed flying saucer in a humanoid body nearby. Returning to their remote research outpost with the body still in a block of ice, they are forced to defend themselves against the still-alive and malevolent plant-based alien when it is accidentally defrosted by an electric
2: blanket. <laughs> Oops! <laughs> okay, listeners. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. This is The Thing from Another World.
0: That thing's alive, sir. I saw it. I shot at it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like a cat. I mean, Captain, it was awful. You couldn't see those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got... It. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions. Astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other.
1: If we can only communicate with it.
0: In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olson scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needle's hit the top.
1: In Anchorage, journalist Ned Scott, played by Douglas Spencer, looking for a hot scoop, visits the only place one could find such a scoop in that frosty wasteland, the Alaskan Air Command Officers Club, where one can always find a very Britishy good time. He meets Captain Pat Hendry, played by Kenneth Toby, his co pilot Eddie, and navigator Mac. The group have a very 1951 discussion objectifying women and dreaming of tropical locales until Hendry is summoned to the office of General Fogarty. A man whose sole existence is to remind people to shut the door right after telling them to come inside. I wanna know have you ever seen an alien (laughs) I just think John Fogarty.
2: That's all I needed.
1: I love your (laughs) references. Fogarty orders Hendry to fly to Polar Expedition Six, a science outpost near the North Pole where the lead scientist, General Know-It-All, and turtleneck enthusiast, Dr. Arthur Ketterington, played by Robert Cornthwaite, has discovered a downed aircraft and now beneath the ice. The crew, along with Scott and a dog team, heads to the outpost while enjoying the first of many cups of coffee. Upon arrival, Scott and the airmen meet radio operator Tex, Dr. Chapman, his wife Mrs. Chapman, a man named Lee, who was one of the two cooks, and the Inuit dog handlers. Thank you for this. Also, present are scientists Voorhees, Stern, Redding, Stone, Lawrence, Wilson, Ambrose, Auerbach, Olson, and Carrington.
2: I'm sorry, you just made me laugh so hard. Thank you. <laughs> a man named Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Pertinent information.
1: Henry rekindles a romance with Nikki Nicholson. Really? Who wrote this? Played by Margaret Sheridan, Carrington's secretary. The two discuss their previous date where Hendry got plastered and made a fool of himself. He wants a redo to prove he's better than the normal example of a 1951 heterosexual male. But there's no time for that now, and a team flies to the crash site where they all stand in the cold around an object to determine if it's circular. (laughs) They have discovered a UFO. They try to free the craft by using thermite, but the ship's not-of-this-earth-metal alloy has a violent reaction to it and is destroyed. Oops. There is, however, a body nearby, frozen in the ice, which they excavate and bring back to the outpost, oops, just as an arctic storm closes in on them. Back to the post at the pole. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look that pole. <clears> That's <throat> frozen.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't lick that pole thing. Back at the outpost, Hendry, proving himself to be more 1951 than he leads on, assumes command denies the press their rights, and tells the scientists to shut the fuck up about their experiments and curiosities. He orders the radio operator to contact his general for further instructions, but there seems to be a problem receiving communications. He assigns a watch over the body, but the crew are unnerved by its appearance. Repressed 1950s homosexual Bob, played by Dewey Martin, the crew chief, flirts and suggests that Henry shorten the watch time because, ew, the thing's gross. Hendre not so slyly, checks out Bob's ass and, after the brief confusion as to what's happening in his pants, subsides, agrees. The next person on guard is very, very stupid and covers the ice with an electric blanket, falling the ice and releasing the Thing. Oops. The Thing escapes outside and is attacked by the sled dogs, but really does a number on them itself. The airmen recover one of its severed arms after the attack. Being very science-minded, the scientists deduce that the creature is plant-based, like a Beyond Burger that's actually from the Beyond. (laughs) Carrington is convinced of its superiority and desperately wants to communicate with it. Hendry's like, nah, and the airmen start searching for the thing, which leads them to the Outpost Greenhouse, where the scientists start a watch of their own after discovering a dead dog in the compost box drained of its blood. After two members of the group are killed by the carnivorous plant creature, who sports a five head and a big ass hands, they barricade it in the greenhouse. Hendry's all, stop in Caddington, and orders him to remain in his quarters. But that's exactly where he wants to be, and begins conducting an experiment with seeds taken from the severed arm. He feeds the seeds blood, and the alien plants grow at an alarming rate. Oops. The airmen receive orders to keep the thing alive but they're like, fuck that noise, and bright idea flamer Bob suggests that they douse the creature with kerosene and set it ablaze, destroying a room, but not killing the alien, and it retreats into the storm. Everyone regroups and realizes it's oddly really fucking cold in the North Pole outpost. The thing has destroyed the furnaces, and now they're all chilly. I'm telling y'all it's sabotage. Sabotage. Thank you. <laughs> Flamer Bob suggests that they build an electric fly trap to kill the thing once and for all. It appears and falls for the trap, but not before Carrington runs up to it for a heart-to-heart. The thing responds by backhanding him to the floor. Oops. But on Hendry's order, the electricity is started and the thing is reduced to a pile of ash. Later, as the weather clears, Nikki offers the men coffee, as that seems to be what women do in 1951. While Scott is finally able to transmit his big scoop to the world, he warns everyone to keep watching the skies. And presumably, everyone does. The end. Wow, not much happens in this movie. Nope. (laughs) (laughs)
2: There's a series of coffee breaks and plane shots. (laughs) Things seem to be happening, but it's really just exterior shots of a plane and people enjoying folders. The Thing from Another World was released on April 27th, 1951. By the end of that year, the film had accrued. Uh, $1.9 million in distributors domestic, making it the year's 46th biggest earner, beating all other science fiction films released that year, including The Day the Earth Stood Still and When
1: Worlds Collide. Yeah, but it was like the 49th, or yeah, 46th biggest earner. So I'm like, there was that many movies that year, and it still outpaced The Day the Earth Stood Still and Worlds Collide?
2: Yeah. Interesting. I mean, think back then, they were churning out like shit tons of movies, right? The Hollywood system, studio yeah, system. Yeah, that's right. Crazy. True. The Thing From Another World holds an
1: 86% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 73%. The site's consensus reads, As flying saucer movies go, The Thing From Another World is better than most, thanks to well-drawn characters and concise, tense plotting. Was it? There was dialogue. Yes,
2: Overlapping dialog. <laughs> Overlapping dialog. Who knows what people were saying? We could have missed a serious key. People heat. talk in real life. That a, Scrap. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times observed, taking a fantastic notion, or is it really? Mister. Hawks has developed a movie that is generous with thrills and chills. Adults and children can have a lot of old-fashioned movie fun at the thing, but parents should understand their children and think twice before letting them see this film if their emotions are not properly conditioned. Gene and Variety, complain that the film lacks genuine entertainment values. Well, <laughs> Isaac Asimov thought it to be one of the worst movies he had ever
1: seen. Of course, he is one of the most prolific and amazing science fiction authors of all time. Mm-hmm. But a little background on that is that Isaac Asimov actually was a huge fan of this author and the story. And okay. so it's like one of those people that were in love with the source material and then got a movie that was so far from it that they couldn't like the movie. And we've all been there. And so I just didn't want to just leave it at that. But for his part, Campbell, the author, acknowledged that an adaption would have to change elements from the original, which he considered too scary for most audience members, and
2: hoped that at least the movie would succeed in getting people interested in science fiction. Which I guess it it really did. Yeah. Uh, the film is now considered to be one of the best films of 1951, and one of the great science fiction films of the 50s in general. In 2001, the United States Library of Congress deemed the film culturally significant and selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. Additionally, Time Magazine named The Thing from Another World the greatest 1950s science fiction movie, and it is ranked number 87 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list.
1: God, that's gotta be like our 15th
2: movie or something that's been added to the Library of Congress that we've covered in a yeah. deep dive. I mean, they tend to pop up, you yeah. know. And I'm always glad when I see that because I like I like it when genre films are deemed that, right? Yeah. So, so we've got a
1: cast here that I mean, this is way before my time, you yeah. know, and, and pretty much everyone's time. And there might be people here that some of our older uh, listeners are real afic- film aficionados would recognize Margaret Sheridan was pretty big in the 50s uh, and really the 40s and she played Nikki Nicholson she got top billing for some reason on this I even
2: though no she idea. is not a main character no she's I mean she's not really in it all that much and when she doesn't really provide any sort of like foil for anything right If any, if yeah. anything she's like comic relief
1: right yeah she's she's popping her head and being like coffee break and that's pretty much you know she's like i don't know like maybe that's where leslie nielsen came in it was popping in the cockpit be like we're all counting on you you know, I know. what i mean like,
2: <laughs> but i mean like she has a presence in this movie at least yeah you know i mean like she's striking for sure yeah um and when outspoken she, yes and when she is on screen like she's She's actually, she's funny. Like, she's a good character. I like the character. I like everything that she has to say. I think that she is like an outspoken, like, woman amongst a whole bunch of, like, really loud men. And um, that's kind of a breath of fresh air from some movies of this time period. That's true. And there's a reason for it. Oh. And we'll get into that later, too. Nice.
1: We also have Kenneth Toby as Captain Patrick Hendry, who, if there was a main character, he would be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have got Robert Cornthwaite. <laughs> As Doctor Arthur Carrington, who was actually he had like white hair and everything, but he was actually only thirty-five when this was filmed. Oh, they made him look much older than that. They'd, yeah, they did. I noticed that he looked young. I was like, he looks a little too young for white hair. It's a fucking turtle. But moves. in black and white, it's hard to tell sometimes. Yeah, and with big dark glasses on too.
2: And I guess that he's more of the villain in this. I maybe mean, even more so than the thing. Kind, kind of, of. I mean, he's yeah. this—he's an advocate for science. So you—you're always
1: kind of. I don't know. With twenty twenty two eyes, I'm kind of on the scientist side anyway. Oh, definitely. But I'm like, yeah, let him do his stuff. Let him do his stuff. But at some point, he did get overzealous. He treated science like a religion, right? Yeah. And when you start treating things like a religion, you start to throw logic out the window, right? It's like pay attention to this position that you are in now. And he started to say things like, "All of us, our lives are meaningless compared to what we could learn from this." And he, like, from a thousand feet view, that makes sense. Sure. But at the end of the day, you've got to protect your your life, you know, and those around you. You can't make that decision for everyone there.
2: I would go so far to say that Hendry does the exact same thing from a militaristic standpoint, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a little frustrating because he's like, okay, well, you've got your orders and uh, it's backing us at the, the scientist. And he's like, well, fuck you. And it takes the guy just holding out a gun to be like, okay, well, that's the common denominator there. Like the yeah. lowest common denominator, the people with the guns are the ones that are in charge. Yeah. You know, so there's a little bit of that, you know, that's, you know, famously Stephen King gets into later, you know, in some episodes of the Twilight Zone and some things where, like, people start to turn in on themselves. You leave people uh, alone enough in a a closed environment and they start inventing reasons to kill each other. Right. Oh, yeah. There's a little bit of that in here. It's kind of hinted at. Right. Yes. Uh, We got Dewey Martin as Bob, the crew chief, which is our, you know. Probably both of our hot guy in this. I mean, yeah, we'll get yeah. to that.
2: I'm sure. In this, in the the synopsis, he is the the flamer that we keep talking about. <laughs> he because <laughs> we want him to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was cute, you know. And so, like, spoiler alert for the end of the episode, probably. But like, I don't going to say he looks like a less goofy James Marsden. <laughs> yes, this is exactly what he said, and you're accurate with that. He does look like a less goofy James Marsden, but he was always in like a very smart cardigan with a tie, and I was just like queer or whatever. Yeah. And there are some scenes where like. The fucking chemistry between him and Hendry is like so palpable. Yeah. You can cut it with a thing.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and finally, we have James Arnis uh, as the thing. And uh, this is a famous actor. I didn't really recognize I don't recognize him. I don't know his name. I don't, I don't know one. who this person is. But we mentioned him in the notes above because he was unrecognizable. But he's probably one of the most recognizable people in this cast simply because he was on Gunsmoke playing like a marshal for over five decades. Yeah. Essentially like, like the, the end second of, longest running yeah. show
2: of all time at this. Point. Yes. Yeah. And he played the thing because he's six foot six. Wow. Yeah. So, I don't I, like like we just said. I don't really recognize any of these names. I don't recognize any of these actors by face either, you know. And I, I also know that around this time period, or this is like pretty much the start of it, like they were churning out just tons of these science fiction movies, right? And budget is always a concern, and I don't think that the studio system was assigning their big stars to some of this stuff. No, right? Like it was all going to be popcorn fodder, and they were going to make money, but. You know, like, their big stars were given more, like, Oscar bait, dramatic work to do, or even, like, like comedies and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, but I pushed back on that a little bit because this did have a big engine behind it in Howard Hawks. Yes. I mean, just that same year, he directed Bringing Up Baby, I believe. hmm Right. And uh, a bunch of others. He's he's responsible for a lot, and we'll get into him later as well.
2: Out of everyone's name attached to anything in this movie, Howard Hawks is like the the one that I would recognize, right? Because he's formidable in that time period.
1: So I think like this was like uh, this the story is one of hundreds of stories that this author has told in in his magazines and. Uh, you know, and, and everything else back then when science fiction wasn't as you know popular, although we did get the serials in the 40s and 50s that inspired many, many directors, including Spielberg and George Lucas that, sure. you know, that kind of built the summer blockbuster de- decades later mm-hmm. and inspired all these people and inspired much a, a lot of horror, uh, including John Carpenter, who absolutely loves this film. and. Yeah. Um, you know, in the original stories is very famous. Um, the themes that they tried to do in this movie, I think would have worked better if they had a budget or, or, you know, the capabilities that they even had in like the seventies and eighties, but they just didn't have that back then, you know? And so um, a lot of this turned into like a, a red scare kind of yeah analogy.
2: Well, I think a lot of science fiction at that particular time period did. Right. I mean like, Oh Yeah. Everything is kind of like thinly veiled sure. as being anti-communist, right? Very McCarthyism. Like there's a lot of that going on in all of these like 1950s science fiction movies. There's a lot about um, like a backlash toward like science from a military standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure a lot of that had to do with like the the bomb, you know, and everything that was going on, and people were kind of like distrustful about science because they saw its destructive nature and things like that. And it, it didn't take too long after World War two for these kind of themes and these ideas to make its way into film. And the easiest place to put those for people to write these things is in like science fiction and horror, right? You didn't see a whole lot of that in a lot of like the dramatic or comic work. Well, I think about Battlestar Galactica reimagining after 9/11. It yes. was one of the only shows
1: that could really go there, you know, outside mm-hmm. of the, the the shows that were like literally about terrorism, you know.
2: And we have said this before on the podcast. It's just easy for genre To mask the themes and ideas. Make
1: it easier to talk about.
2: Yes. You know, it's just something that's more digestible for people to discuss, right? And maybe something clicks in your brain and while you're watching something like this and just having a good time and you're like, oh, like this is what's happening in real life and maybe I should sort of pay attention to this or just make it easier, easier to think about like things that are happening in your everyday life, right? This is why I like horror. This is why I like genre work. So Exactly. So,
1: uh What I would say the main theme is, of course, the evil spreads and reproduces, right? Some critics have interpreted the thing from another world to convey commentary on the threat of communism, like we just said, uh, the Red Scare in America during the Cold War. And a program notes from the Cinema Texas screening of the film actually stated that, quote, the film is seen as being symbolic of McCarthyism and the fight against communism on the home front. Good Lord. Yeah. Film critic Roger Ebert wrote about, in hindsight, The Thing from Another World in 1982 review of the John Carpenter film, The Thing, stating, quote, The two 1950s versions, The Thing from Another World, and he have also considered Invasion of the Body Snatchers as another loose interpretation, possibly, uh, of the story, were seen at the time as fables based on McCarthyism. Communists, like victims of The Thing, looked, sounded, and acted like your best friend, but they were infected with a deadly secret. And they didn't really touch on that in this film because of budget and things like that hadn't really been done before. They didn't have the benefit of hindsight to see what others had done, you know, and so everything was kind of on the surface. Uh so they really didn't strike that paranoia, um, you know, who's who's, you know, been replaced, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers was able to do, or if the thing in 1982 was able to do, you know, based
2: on like they didn't want to be too scary and they also just didn't have the capabilities. Well, and also I'm not quite sure that an audience at that time would welcome that kind of movie, right? Like that, that kind of like paranoid movie experience. Nothing really like <clears throat> that had existed at the time, as far as I know. No. And I mean, this is why next week when we talk about Carpenters, the thing that having that level of paranoia just is integral to this story. Yeah. Right. Like if you have just a giant vegetable being, you know, like running around killing people and, and, <clears throat> like that that's not really frightening to me what's more frightening in this movie is the like the the vast difference between the scientists and the military people right yeah. and I, I'm not even quite sure that that was explored as much as it could have been no everything's been done better in other movies like the mist You know, I'm thinking about, you know,
1: not even like military, but also like all sorts of different types of people. Yes.
2: I mean, yeah, that's like a microcosm of people, like sort of, you know, in a, you know, uh, apocalyptic state. Right. But Invasion of the Body Snatchers does exactly what this movie should have been doing or what the source material does. Yeah. Like it really creates a sense of paranoia and not understanding like who your neighbor is, which is truly, truly frightening. I feel like every version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, except for maybe the Nicole Kidman one. Um, is really, really good. Like, it's it's a good story when you talk about stuff like that. And when you talk about, like, I kind of feel calling this movie <clears throat> the best example of 1950 science fiction is inaccurate for whatever publication did that. I feel like Invasion of the Body Snatchers is probably much, much more apt to earn that title. But that's yeah. just my opinion.
1: Film critic Nick Shager also wrote the film's themes, stating... Quote, an early remark by one military official concerning the burgeoning Soviet presence in the North Pole reinforces the thing's allegorical status as communist other, one can deduce that Hendry, fears the creature not only because it's emotionless and sexless, sexless, but also godless.
2: You can deduce that, I guess, but I don't see a whole lot of evidence about that.
1: Yeah, but I, I do see the analogy of the time. Certainly. Um, but it just would have been served sort of better if they had actually stayed closer to the source material in some way. I feel like like werewolves and shit had been done around this time and, mm-hmm. and other things and other transformations. All you have to do is show, you know, a human with an alien hand or something or, you know, it start to form. And, and some of this had been planned, but it was written out, you know, because they just couldn't make it work or they just didn't believe in it.
2: And that's not to say that this movie doesn't have, like, really good moments in it, which I'm sure that we'll get to. You know, like, it it throws its budget in certain places, right? But I think you're right. Like, if if you're going to call this thing an allegory at some point, you really need some better evidence than what we were presented with in this movie. And one character's errant comment about communism, like, doesn't make it an allegory. I'm sorry. I I think it's like hanging a lantern on it, but uh, yeah, it's... You know, it's the it's it's obvious there. It's not even this fucking subtext. I mean, yeah, you could have like pushed that boundary a little bit more. Yeah, and, and, and no really... one ever talked about it being emotionless or sexless. You know, I mean, like no, they they didn't even really call it the thing. Well, we just call it that because that's the title of the movie. You know, they say it a lot, I think. It or like creature or alien. alien, yeah. But they never really call it the thing, which does indicate something that's like emotionless and sexless. Yeah, you know, they, they just don't do it so like you mentioned some of those
1: scenes and i feel like one of the the scenes in particular not even the ending where they're like electrocuting it and stuff like that but there were some scenes that people have said like back then were like some of the scariest they'd ever seen before in their lives scared them to death like people were fainting and stuff which is that like fire scene right where they're trying to uh use flamethrowers and kerosene and just like light things on fire and throw kerosene and there's like 10 people in this fucking room. Right. Mm-hmm. And some of them are principal cast and you can see their faces. Like one of them, uh, you know, is just holding up this pillow or whatever. And that's the, our, our main actress, you know, and he's literally like scratches and cuts the pillow while he's on fire. And all this was choreographed in such a way, you know, that
2: even I was impressed looking at it now, just how they had, would have had to do that. I completely agree with you. Cause we're, I mean, I had seen this movie before, like one other time when I was a teenager, a very young teenager when I was trying to like, you know, fill in some like film gap and I have not seen it since and I was pleasantly reminded about how good that fire scene is for the time period well, you got
1: the principal actors like throwing kerosene you can literally see it lighting on fire and the set is getting on fire and and other things are going on fire you know you got your principal actress with only protected protected by a pillow you know and so like all of this I don't know how some of this was done or how they would have gotten away with it with insurance I do know there's an anecdote about trying to ensure parts of this movie they were like trying to just ensure like the creature effects mm-hmm. and And they had to go through like six different insurance companies because they looked at the script and like it's frozen, lit it on fire and then electrocuted. So you're going to put this through all of those things and we're not going to actually insure you because of that. You know, and so I had to find I was like, well, some of that's going to be movie magic and some of it's not, you know.
2: Well, and I mean, at the time, there was only so far that movie magic can go. You yeah. know what I mean? Like very obvious. Yeah, they lit the fucking set on fire. <laughs> yeah. These people were in like peril, like actual peril. And I mean, it's impressive to look at. Right. Especially because they like dim the lights before they do it in that particular scene. And of course they do that just to get the better effect of the fire or whatever. But. I mean, it really looks neat. But when you stop and think about it, like these people (laughs) are in danger. It does seem like a yeah. (laughs) And it seems like a set piece,
1: though, too, because they're also matter of fact about it. They're a matter of fact, the entire thing. And we are working with dedicated professionals in the military and the scientists and stuff like that. But there's no like moments of fear. You're never with the characters before during these moments. It kind of plays out and they're like, anyone want some coffee? You know, it's like it's kind of a weird thing because it's like this is your major like fire set piece for this movie. And the biggest moment of fear and people are fainting in the audiences and everything else. And they're just kind of moving on. Maybe you're right. Focusing on the emotion in, in these scenes at all would have just been too much for those audiences. God, they're sitting
2: there talking about the thing being emotionless. Right. Yeah. But You're right. I mean, I didn't really think about that until just now when you said it. But like no one seems to be very afraid of this creature. Certainly none of the women. Which is interesting.
1: Yeah. And there are several women, but the main character is just never afraid at all. And if anyone's afraid in this, it's like the journalist is angry. The scientist is angry. It's mostly about anger. And, you know, the fear is about uh, watching the creature alone, right? They're trying mm-hmm. to like build up the tension there, you know, but they don't really let us sit with that at all. It's very matter of fact. It
2: is. And it's all like, it's all just like told from a, like a second person account, right? right. He's coming to like... He doesn't want to be in there in the room for four hours because the eyes are open or something, right? <clears throat> and we, we can't and even... I can we tell don't, it's
1: looking for me, you know?
2: We don't even get a really good, like, look of it through the ice, right? We barely get no. a good look at the creature until it's electrocuted, right? And, I like, the movie for for a science fiction horror film doesn't do a very good job of creating that kind of fear, which is something that I enjoy when watching horror. Like, we just said that someone called it very tense, right? Mm-hmm. I disagree. I don't find it very tense at all. No, but apparently
1: audiences did, and, and some people really thought it was the scariest
2: one of the scariest movie moments and it's on lists for that. And that's that's good, you know, and it, that is not to say like this isn't a, a, a disparaging remark about movies that come out of that time period, because I have seen movies from the 50s and 60s or even the 40s that are genuinely frightening. Right. Yeah. but maybe more conceptually, I don't I don't know, like uh, a lot of these like I,
1: we were talking offline about this last last night. And it was like a lot of these uh, movies are like uh, supported by these shocking moments that just don't shock audiences anymore. And yeah. so a lot of the engine is out of these films like this one is. Probably case in point, some of at least like we like whatever happened to baby Jane for different reasons, maybe than it was back when whatever happened to baby Jane came out, because apparently, you know, when she was served a rat on a platter, that was like people were fainting in the audiences. And that was scary, you know, like that was like one of the scariest movie moments they'd ever you know, and they were interviewing people. What did you do? What did you think when the, when the rat was revealed? I was like, oh, I screamed so loudly. And then <laughs> Janet fainted right next to me. I had to tell her to scram.
2: I don't know. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> but no, I totally get that. And I that could be the thing, too, is that, like, when, when people go back and watch these movies... And we we may have we may be digressing just a little bit in this conversation, but I think it's important to talk about. Yeah. When when people go back and watch these movies today from a modern lens, like even people younger than us. Mm -hmm. Right. Like they're just they're not going to get the same visceral reaction. Like, obviously. No, Um, not from these set pieces. No. Just because they've seen so much other more shocking kinds of things. Right. I don't I don't feel like it doesn't make this movie any less important. You know, no.
1: But if- uh, as far as it's inspiration, but if you go back and look at movies where the the fear or the action or the drama is based on ideas and concepts, those things don't really die. And you can go back and watch *Wizard of Oz* somewhat. You can go back and watch *Gone with the Wind* certainly, mm-hmm. and all of those big ideas about war and the encroaching soldiers and you know whole cities burning down, you know that's you know that's part of the drama that doesn't really go away. The engine there is it's still kind of running because it's the the concepts that. Uh, It's psychologically intriguing and and scary versus showing us the set piece uh, of a seven foot monster that was scary in 1950. That is just absolutely goofy today. Mm, That's
2: true. I know. I mean, I think that you really hit the nail on the head when you said inspiration, because I think that's what this movie should be remembered for. Right. And I think that's what makes it important is like the way that it it inspired like future filmmakers and and things like that. And so. Yeah. and And it's mostly not boring mostly mostly (laughs) i don't know that that's true either hold on let me open this drink yeah i mean i
1: I felt like we watched an episode of the twilight zone that it could have been a little bit more hard hitting and shorter without like 25 minutes of setup of you know plain shots and asking people for coffee and (laughs) you know and then like some dialogue scenes that had nothing to do with the rest
2: of the movie like for for character build-up that we didn't need you know no you're right because very little of the dialogue pushed the story forward it's just people talking about random bullshit and like i i understand that that may have been the way that movies were kind of scripted at the time but i think a lot of the the
1: dialogue in this movie at least how it was performed was very much dependent on the directors and producers of this film mm. because it was very stylized right you'll hear a lot of directors be like uh, like Anthony Hopkins famously says, uh, the best direction that you can give as a director is to a good actor is slower or faster or less or more. Yeah. Right. And uh, the actors should be able to find their own motivations in a scene based on the story, you know. But uh, this, you know, uh, you know, some directors actually say. We'll do one where it's like double speed. Like we go faster, faster and faster. And often takes in the editing room, they use the, the fastest dialog they We'll do it. They'll play the scene that the actors normally. And then, and the director says, just do it faster and faster and faster. And that's what they take because it sounds more natural, mm-hmm. right? Naturalistic dialogue is, is faster, faster delivery. And with this, it's one of the only films I've seen where people are actively speaking over each other and have been directed in almost in every scene for two, sometimes even three or four people to be speaking at once and stepping on each other's lines, they were careful not to do that with like ask and uh, ask and answer type mm-hmm, of dialogue. Right. But they are literally stepping on each other, and it's distracting to
2: me. It really is. I completely agree with you. It's very very distracting, and not just from like I don't I don't know what they said standpoint. It also when characters are talking over themselves like that. I can't differentiate any of the characters from like face value in this movie. Like I could pick out some of the principal characters. Right. But there is a supporting amount of people in this outpost. Right. And people are dying. And I'm just like, I don't give a fuck because I have no idea who they are. I don't know what they've said. They've probably said something, but someone else was talking over them at the same time. And it's just, you have no time to really get to know Anybody in this movie, aside from like maybe the main three people in it being like the woman who's barely ever there and then the scientist and the the captain, that's it. You know, like everyone else is there. They all have things to say and things to do maybe. Right. But I mean, who gives a shit because none of it makes any sense. Yeah. And none of it's part of the plot. But that's kind of
1: the fascination of this movie, the intrigue, because as you're able to look at it and see what everything has been built on since then to create naturalistic dialogue and how this went too far in one direction to try and make it. It's like really try hard naturalistic dialogue to try and step away from like the the watchable stage plays. Yeah. That these people, you know, and if you think about it, some, you know, some of these directors around in the 40s and 50s started their careers in silent pictures. Oh, that's true. Right? And so they're all kind of experimenting, which is interesting. And that's certainly the case for Howard Hawks. Yeah. And there is a kind of a little bit of a director scandal here um, where none of the actors or people who have worked on it really view it as a scandal. But a lot of people will say different things, kind of similar to Poltergeist. Oh, shit. Right. Where we're not sure who directed this film, Toby Hooper or Steven Spielberg. And a lot of people say it was Spielberg and some other actors say it was Toby Hooper, you know? So it's, it's just interesting. And, um, you know, a lot of people are saying that this was actually directed by Howard Hawks, who's a very famous director. Yes. And, uh, you know, saying it was him instead of Christian Nyby and that Howard Hawks may have shadow directed this in order to get his friend or up and coming, you know, Christian Nyby, uh, his opening director's guild credit. Okay. Right. And so I feel like that tracks. And Howard Hawks is very famous multi genre director. He like I said, he did bringing a baby and he transitioned from silence to talkies in the the classic Hollywood era. And he's known for his strong, tough talking female characters, then known as Hoxian women. And that's where this comes from. If you ever heard the term Hoxian women and the biggest example of that would be Catherine Hepburn. Of course, she was in bringing a baby as well. That's right. You know, and so a lot of those those like um, no nonsense, outspoken female roles where they're not
2: super emotional, you know, or damsels is from his movies. And I feel like our main female character in this movie is very much like that. She is right. I mean, she at one point has supposedly tied up her love interest, like tied his hands behind his back and is feeding him liquor, you know, Mm -hmm. like I can't think of anything that's more in control than that.
1: Right. Yeah. And he's famous for uh, the original Scarface from 1932, bringing a baby, obviously the uh, uh, way bringing a baby is 1938. Why was I thinking that was the same year? Maybe that was an earlier version. I don't know. Um, Only angels have wings. Uh, His girl Friday to have and have not the big sleep red river, which uh, of course she was supposed to star in, but she got pregnant. And so maybe that's why she was in this. I don't mm-hmm. know. The thing from another world, obviously uh, gentlemen prefer blondes and Rio
2: Bravo. Rio Bravo is a fantastic movie. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is probably my favorite uh, Monroe movie, Mm -hmm. right? I really, really enjoy that film. Do any of
1: those have this, like, super uh, naturalistic dialogue? I remember Bringing a Baby has a little bit of that.
2: A little. I mean, like, Rio Bravo is really more of a, like a, obviously it's a Western, right? And so, like, a lot of it revolves around just general western like constructs and whatnot but gentlemen prefer blondes for sure right as far as like those like sex comedies go from that time period i think that's like the smartest yeah right the thing is is that no one in that movie is talking over each other and they're very distinct characters yeah
1: so i'm on the fence i don't know i I feel like a lot of the actors that say of course christian and i be dead we viewed him as the director but we viewed howard hawks as the boss but Howard Hawks was always out there on set and he would like help with the setups and and some of the direction and things like that. And then different actors have different scenes, right? And so if one director is more of a presence than the other, you know.
2: I don't know how uncommon this is though during that time period. I feel like producers and studio heads had their fingers on everything that was going on the 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 director
1: was the director even then right but the what was common was that you would have assistant directors do all like the action scenes because action scenes weren't what they are today you know and so that wasn't a big like actor director thing or setting up you know they would have assistant directors do all these technical shots right and so that was also done by assistant directors but I, ha- I can't say that's like, who the fuck was the assistant director that did that fire scene, you know? <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. That I had know. to have been. That was all the principal actors in one room. I hope they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1974, he was awarded an Honorary Academy Award as a, quote, Master American Filmmaker whose creative efforts hold a distinguished place in the world of cinema. Said so his work has also influenced... Various popular respected directors such as Martin Scorsese, Robert Altman, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, uh,
2: John Carpenter, of course, Rainer Werner Warner, and uh, Michael Mann. I would even throw De Palma in there. Sure. Yeah. You know. Um, definitely. I feel like anybody from that like like gritty like seventies into the early eighties time period of like really like guerrilla filmmaking or whatever. Yeah. Um, owes Howard Hawks a debt, right? I think they they really studied him. So.
1: There's a lot of things that didn't do him any favors, though, like the music. Um, although I, I thought it was good. It was serviceable, but it, it borderlines into that, into that like schlocky 40s, 50s sci-fi. Yeah. What is, mm-hmm. what is that instrument? Like a theremin? Where, yes, the theremin. <laughs> it was some sort of like sci-fi noise that's just like super cartoony. Yeah. And schlocky. Yeah. And of course it was like cutting edge back then, I'm sure. And people weren't tired of it yet. it wasn't a meme. I really want a theremin though. Like, yeah, I, just, I do, I just I do too. I want one. <laughs> I do too. But it was by Dimitri Ch- uh, Tjomkin. And he was famous for Westerns and he had 22 Academy Award nominations over his career with four wins for high nudes, both the score and original song. And then his scores for the high and the mighty, and then his score for the old man in the sea. Huh? I've only seen high noon and I've never heard of his name before. I have not either. Like like I said, before our time, 22 Academy Award nominations. That's fucking impressive. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, My only other notes, like, like we, we keep mentioning all this fucking coffee. First because which was they like,
2: woke someone up on a plane. Yeah.
1: The the journalist, they wake him up three <laughs> hours before they land. And they're like, hey, wake up. We got some coffee. <laughs> you know? I know. Come to the front. Come to the cockpit for the fucking coffee. <laughs> right.
2: He's pouring all the coffee in between the pilots. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? They just have all those people, like, right there, like next to each other in that very tiny space drinking coffee and talking about how they're still so far away from where they're going. And I'm like, we don't need any of this. And then in betwixt all that, are just like exterior shots of the fucking airplane. They're very proud of that plane. They were super proud of that plane. Cause they showed it in the sky. They showed it landing. U S air force and away, comic, Sands yeah, <laughs> <you're> like. USAF, <laughs> comic sans or whatever. USAF comic sans. What's the font? I mean, like they were super proud of that fucking plane. I don't know like this movie you're you're right it could have been an episode of the twilight zone because 20 minutes of it's like less than an hour and a half runtime is ridiculousness involving yeah. yeah like involving coffee or just random exterior shots that don't do anything for the plot you know. Like I kind of feel like they were just trying to make money with this, but I feel like 1951 is very early for like the science fiction heyday. Like that would come much later in the 50s. Yeah. So, who knows?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, I don't have much to say. I mean, it's it's
2: just. <laughs> it just is what it is
1: it is what it is and there's like so many moments where you could just like we should have been just recorded ourselves while we watched it for y'all because oh my god you just yeah. like as they like they're standing in a circle to just make sure that it's a circle like <laughs> on the ice to see like the ship below the ice or whatever and they'll have to describe it because they can't afford to show
2: anything they're like it's a UFO it's a circle we're in a circle and Chris is like it's smaller than my living room <laughs> <laughs>
1: Look, there was this big, like, music motif behind it, too, Though, they, as they get into this circle. Like, it was a dramatic moment. And I'm like,
2: this is a small-ass ship. I'm like, what the fuck but again that is just like contemporary hindsight right I mean like we at at the time it's much better than a thing where it's like a
1: mile fucking wide or something and they're just like on this arctic shelf looking at it
2: yeah well but I mean like at the time like UFOs were big like people were like literally terrified of stuff like that you know and so the idea of sitting in a theater and realizing that they're making a circle right that it's a circle aircraft probably would have been scary oh my god at the time period they're clutching pearls and shit let's all stand in this circle so because we can't recognize the simple shape <laughs> the dollars we well, they have to convey it to the audience but I was just like they're just doing this in the cold Patty, it. Is that a squaw or is a sarcop that's a sarcop <laughs> that looks more like an oval <laughs> oh god want what? some coffee <laughs> <laughs> I like how we go into that like very affected voice though we're like well we haven't seen a UFO around here in all these years I mean, like <laughs> <laughs> Jesus
1: Christ uh, anyway should we talk about just for the setup and maybe we should have talked about this first, but should we talk about who goes there? The original story? Yeah, I really I really do want to read this novel. But I have done some research because <laughs> I was interested to see like is this the better, you know, translation adaption of this material? Okay. Uh, which which adaption, if any is, uh, you know, is the better adaption or is the, is a good adaption at all. So who goes there is a 1938 science fiction horror novella by American author John W. Campbell written under the pen name, Don Stewart. And just in case any of you were confused and looking for this. So its story follows a group of people trapped in a scientific research outpost in Antarctica with a shape-shifting alien monster able to absorb and imitate any living being. So that was um, obviously already it's much more like 1982 version. Yes. The novella was first published in August 1938 issues of Astounding Science Fiction, and it was also printed as the thing from another world later on. Okay. So there are two slightly different versions of the original novella. It was first published in The Astounding Science Fiction in a 12-chapter version, which also appears in Adventures in Time and Space and the Ectarctos cycle, horror and the Wanderer of the earth at the ends of the earth or something. Um, and uh, an extended 14 chapter version was later included in the best of John W. Campbell and his collection Who Goes There. So in 1973, the story was voted by the science fiction writers of America as one of the stories representing the most influential, important, and memorable science fiction that has ever been written. It was promptly published with the other top voted stories in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame Volume 2.
2: What was in Volume 1?
1: I don't know. But uh, it can't under, it can't be overstated how important these magazines were back then. Like this oh, yeah. is where like Arthur Conan Doyle got a lot of like starts, and like uh, John Carter of Mars and all that stuff was like really starting to germinate and and hit the ground running with these serials and all, and all the things that were becoming science fiction. Now these stories were kind of the engine of that, and that's where like Heinlein and you know um, Asimov and a bunch of these people kind of got their interest and start in science fiction and and fell in love with these stories and wrote their own. You know. Um, and so that's probably why some of these people are saying they hated this movie.
2: I think the same could be said of horror writers as well. Sure. Right. I mean, because, because Stephen King got his start writing for magazines, right. And things like that. I mean, so like, I, yeah. I kind of wish that we had access to stuff like that today. I guess we do. Cause then you can publish anything you want to on like Amazon or audible or things like yeah. that. Self publishing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible, but just having access to, to stuff like this would be amazing.
1: yeah. Well, interestingly, in 2018, it was discovered that who goes there was actually a shortened version of a lot much larger novel previously written by Campbell. Hmm. The vastly expanded manuscript, including an entirely different opening titled Frozen Hell, which is another working uh, another working title was Pandora, apparently, was found in a box of manuscripts sent by Campbell to Harvard University. So a Kickstarter campaign was launched to publish the full novel, and when completed on December 1st, the campaign raised more than $155,000 compared to its original goal of $1,000. An edited version of the two original drafts was published together by Wildside Press under the full title Frozen Hell, the book that inspired The Thing, and illustrated by Bob Eccleton. And there's an ebook versions of the novel uh, also being distributing um, digitally to those campaign backers uh, with physical copies following in June. And I'm wondering if I can get a hold of one of this, if it's wider released now or if it's just part of that Kickstarter, because I'd love
2: to, to read the
1: whole novel and compare it to
2: the novella. So they took the novella and the full novel that they found and sort of like mashed them together? No, I think they have both in that included time? maybe. Okay.
1: That's what I'm getting from this All anyway. Right. But I don't have it in front of me, and I don't know if it's even accessible. But I, either way, I want to read the novella. But oh, if definitely. I can get that that special book, then I'd, I'd love to to get that because, of course, it's responsible for some of the best science fiction horror out there. That's true, and some of the ideas behind it. But it's been uh, obviously directly adapted, you know, from The Thing from Another World, and again in 1982 with The Thing, and uh, which is a more faithful treatment, you know, by John Carpenter, both because of you know able to be scarier and because of you know technical capabilities. Um, and the, the, the stories, many other adaptions and works inspired by it have spanned various media, including possibly invasion of the body snatchers, which we already said, uh, and horror express, which I'd never heard of from 1972 and it has Peter Cushing. Oh, so it's also kind of inspired by it which so we need to see that at some point. There's also been radio dramas, games, comics, all these other short stories, either inspired or closer to the fan, closer to some sort of like fanfic version. Okay. Uh, or even sequels kind of fanfic sequels based on the original story, but officially published. So I don't know if you can still call it fan fiction. I
2: can see how like the basic like premise of that novella would have, would have influenced lots of science fiction. Right. And horror. Right. Yeah. Aside from the like very definite adaptions that have been made f- from it, right? Invasion of the Body Snatchers is very definitely about like paranoia and yeah. like being taken over by something, right? So clearly, clearly, this man uh, created some very definite science fiction themes, yeah. Throughout.
1: So what I've gleaned from all this is that there's really no perfect adaption because there are differences still, but the closest one that we have is the, is John Carpenter's nineteen eighty two. Which I'm
2: very ready to talk about.
1: Oh, yeah. But in January 2020, a new film was announced to be produced by Jason Blum's Blumhouse Productions. I have no updates on this. And released, uh, to be released and distributed by Universal Pictures as part of the former's first look deal. So, the project is going to be based
2: on the full Frozen Hell version of the story. Well, if anyone can take a really good thing and ruin it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. He's hit or miss. Like they just put, they churn out so many movies from Blumhouse that I'm like, yeah. some are excellent and some are not. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know that we need any more.
1: The things. I just had a flashback to us sitting in our original podcast. Nook talking about that. Uh, that as horror news. Oh, the Back frozen hell Yeah. I think we did actually. And because we were excited and we were going to look it up and we never did. <laughs> oh
2: my God. We have no follow through. What's wrong with us? <laughs> And the thing is, is that like you and I both really love the thing like John, John Carpenter's It's
1: thing. one of my favorite films of all time.
2: Yes. And I mean, certainly I think is like when, when people ask me like what horror movie should I watch like like newbies or whatever. The thing is always on the list because it is just like an amazing example of horror and 80s horror and special effects and makeup. Yeah. You know, it's just like it just runs the fucking gamut of that. Right. Yeah, And
1: some people with newer eyes than us, not from the 80s or 90s, think it's goofy now. Right, and so like we're seeing that through a nostalgia bends. I'd really love to hear.
2: Oh, someone thinks that? Well, scram, Betty. <laughs> scram, Betty. <buddy. laughs>
1: but I'd really love to hear from them, like newer, like younger listeners. Um, you know, for our next deep dive, like how hokey does the thing nineteen eighty two seem to you? Uh, is it just some of the effects? Is it all of them? Like, you know, obviously, even to me, the end with the claymation or whatever the fuck, yeah, is a little hokey. Always has been. But the main effects for the brunt of the movie are amazing to this day in my opinion
2: and we are getting ahead of ourselves Way ahead so like, but, stay yeah. tuned for all that conversation i
1: do want to talk about the differences i mean originally it was intended to make the creature a shapeshifter in this version right okay as it was in the novel but the limited budget forced the filmmakers to drop the idea and early conceptual sketches actually depicted the very plant-like looking creature with one of its limbs seemingly undergoing a transformation into a human hand but like i said they couldn't sell it they they lost you know the original idea for that because they were just like, we have to go so far from that and we can't sell it. Then we're just going to go with this like plant thing that can reproduce itself. But they lost the kind of the engine of the paranoia of it. You know, there's no paranoia in this movie. Yeah. Other than like, where is it coming? And all oh, we did, we did not talk about like the Geiger counter thing in this.
2: Oh yeah. There's right? so much like random technology and stuff Yeah, They're like using that. this
1: Geiger counter to kind of track its radiation. Right. And so I'm wondering if the, the, that really kind of, eventually went into what they did in Alien and Aliens with tracking the aliens and seeing it and like knowing it's there, but not seeing it. And that kind of adding to the paranoia because this is the first movie, the oldest movie I've seen where they're able to kind of do that and they do it with a Geiger counter. And so you just see this flashing light go off and there's like this clicking, you know, and you know it's close. And so it's kind of an interesting concept that this might
2: be the earliest form of it. And if they would have just, if they would have just like paid more attention to that, device right and have people shut the fuck up you know and just like have the device like flash make a noise or whatever that alone creates more tension than what they had they're like five feet two feet one foot. Yeah. And I'm like, there it is. They turn I'm- off
1: the lights. Like, every time they're about to attack the creature, they turn off the lights. Turn off the lights. I won't see it as well. You don't know that. <laughs> Jesus
2: Christ. You're not going to be
1: able to see it. You're just turning it off for the benefit of the audience to be scared. But if they had just had, a, a like, an over-the-shoulder camera, you know, of one of those guys, like, with a flamethrower and ho- and holding the Geiger counter, it would have added so much. But, you know, like we didn't get that really until, like, you know, Ridley Scott James Cameron.
2: I mean, it, it feels like, to me, that they have taken a novella or novel, you know, whatever – version you have read um that's clearly about paranoia right yeah and not being able to trust the person sitting right next to you right which is a basic human concept yeah right and it's completely terrifying uh and gotten rid of all of it you know like i I can't think of anything that is further from this man's work than the thing from another world yeah like none of it I don't even know, aside from maybe a title that was used at some point in some, like, republication of it. Like, none of it. None of it seems like it matches anything that this man wrote. Except for the setting. Yeah. You know, the setting and the title. That's it. Well, none of it has shown
1: what the original alien in its native form is supposed to look like. They tried to do that, I think, in the the prequel. To kind of show a native form. What is it, it supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like a blue skin, uh, like a, a tall, blue-skinned humanoid with three red eyes, a sucker mouth, and stringy noodle-like hair.
2: Nope.
1: <laughs> so, I don't even know if it's actually humanoid. I'm, I'm adding that on because that seems to be part of it for everything. But they, they didn't really do that as much in the prequel. I'd have to watch it again. and we, we are later for Patreon. But
2: I have recently watched it. And I don't remember anything like that.
1: Maybe they do. I don't know. But uh, I, I do like the idea of it as some sort of, like, muck. Some sort of, like amorphous you know cancerous looking thing
2: well that would make sense for what it does
1: you know and so i kind of like what john again what john carpenter was able to do you know with the effects but uh also there's some other differences like there are some things are closer like this is a you do see this as a, a high functioning like multi dozens and dozens maybe like 40 to 70 people at this base in this movie versus in john carpenter's the thing it's a much much smaller group right but the original novella has like 70 something people on the okay. base. So this is a little bit closer. And they go through the cycle of they do form a test to to figure out who is who. And every time that they are, you know, in one case, later on, there's like 14 of them are found to be the things. And you start to see the guys that have the flamethrowers and the weapons start to get like these sadistic smiles. Like they hope to catch the thing so that they can kill them because they, they're they starting to enjoy finding people to kill and things like that. And so there's this other thing that that didn't really get captured in, in even John Carpenter's version, which is like I, I humanity kind of bit, turning though. dark on itself in the act of hunting these things down. So you do get that other side of the McCarthyism as well in the original novella that you don't get in e- any adaption that, I've, that I'm aware of.
2: And this novella would definitely predate McCarthyism. So, I mean, I feel like this... This author really had an idea of where the world was going, you know what I mean, in a way that only like prolific genre writers can. And then also, I mean, like, I I really can't wait until next week when we talk about Carpenter's thing, because I, I feel like just... Based on the time period that it was made, there's so much to talk about in the themes and like 1982 America, you know, I mean, like, there's a lot going on in that movie and I feel like it's going to be a really, really good discussion. Not that this was not, you know, but I feel like we're sitting here talking about the ways that this movie could have been better
1: as opposed to yeah but we're also having this big discussion about the original novella versus this movie you know and I think this is a discussion that needs to happen before or as we talk about all of these adaptions because this is all what it's based off of
2: that's true
1: well it's on my fucking read list for sure so So I've got some fun facts okay okay a colorized version of the original film was released in 1989 on VHS by Turner Home Entertainment, yeah, of course and it was, it was billed as an RKO color classic. <laughs>
2: Fucking Ted Turner. So there's a color version of this out there that we could have watched. I couldn't. I don't know. I don't know where it is. I would have poo pooed that had you tried to maybe watch the colorized version. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: Yeah. It kind of interesting to see the fire scene with all color and everything. I think else. it looks better in white. But apparently, like the main actor thought he looked like a big carrot, so I don't want to see a big orange <laughs> version of this.
2: Well, they kept calling him a carrot, yeah. you know? They're like, oh, he's just a carrot. It's a big and scary I thought, carrot. He no, has actually got him like a carrot. <laughs> Scram, But <laughs> <laughs> We haven't eaten a carrot around here in all these years.
1: <laughs> so according to makeup artist Lee Greenway, he took James Arnes in his car to the house of producer and co-director Howard Hawks to show off the makeup for the thing. And after months of frustration, Hawks finally just told Greenway to put a Frankenstein type of headpiece on (laughs) Arnas. And he did. And James Arnas reportedly regarded his role as so embarrassing that he didn't even attend the premiere.
2: I am with you, James. My God, the creature design in this movie is atrocious. Like it is literally like some bastardized version of a classic Frankenstein that It doesn't look scary. It doesn't yeah. look menacing. They knew that
1: at the time they cut out all of his close-ups. So they just showed like the full body shots. And I'm
2: like, that's just a dude. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's a dude with a fucking five head and an abnormally large hands. Yeah. I'm like, it's not It's not scary. No. Doesn't look scary.
1: So the final line of dialogue where Scotty <laughs> admonishes his radio audiences to keep watching the skies. Became an iconic quote considered to be emblematic of the 1950s sci-fi film genre as a whole. Yes, ma'am. As it evokes the flying saucer hysteria of the day, as well as the Red Scare and the threat of nuclear war. It has also been reused, as is, and referenced in modified form countless times by movies, TV shows, theatrical productions, song lyrics, book titles, and websites, usually with humorous
2: intent. That line is famous. Keep watching mean. the skies. Yeah it is like probably the most remembered thing from this movie is that more piece than the of dialogue <laughs> more than more than the actual thing yeah i like cuz i was just a dude <laughs> it was uh, i mean i've heard that every fucking where mm-hmm. like that, that's what i remember most from this movie so when margaret sheridan
1: and kenneth toby are talking about their date in anchorage she mentions him talking about a night in san francisco and being all over her like an octopus Five years later, Toby would star in a movie called It Came From Beneath the Sea, a movie about a giant octopus attacking San Francisco. Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Someone paid me too much attention to the dialogue in this movie. <laughs>
1: <Apparently>. <laughs> oh, uh. So Howard Hawks added From Another World to the title to avoid confusion with the song called The Thing performed by phil harris that was popular at the time and i mean popular i looked this thing up it was like number one like during the 1950 summer or something for a while and there's like all these people from like the the 40s and 50s that are obsessed with this song and it kind of sounds like um i want a hippopotamus but it's like kind of that beat in the same background but it's the song is kind of horror adjacent like it's a this really happy song but it's like he finds a box on the beach and there's a thing in it but he won't say the thing. It's like a blank in the song. It's hard to explain. And then he brings it to the people to try and give it. Like he's stuck with it, whatever it is, and he can't give it away. And he even dies and goes to heaven. And St. Peter's like, no, you're going somewhere else with that thing or whatever. And it's never explained what it is in the song. And so, like, people are in the YouTube comments being like, this this song like my mom used to play this and it used to scare the shit out of me and like and other people were like this was my jam i played it on on end and my grandparents hated me for it and blah 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 and yeah so I know have
2: i never heard of this
1: i'm gonna play a clip right now i
0: picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king i took it to a guy i knew who'd buy most anything but this is what he hollered at me as i walked in his shop oh get out of here with that before i call a cop oh get out of here with that before
1: I call a cop. And stay tuned for after the episode when I'll play the whole thing. <laughs>
2: it's fucking bizarre. <laughs> but now it's my jam. <laughs> well, those fun facts were very fun, actually. Um, and I have a new song to add to playlist. Look out, Music League. But we have to ask some questions about The Thing from Another World, like we do about every movie we deep dive into here on the Film Claimers. And we're going to start with Is The Thing from Another World a horror movie? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's very definitely a science fiction horror movie, Even from right? today's standards. Yeah. I mean, there's a monster. A carity monster. There's plants that are being fed blood. Yeah. You know, feed me. Scram. Scram plant. <laughs> feed me, Carrington. <getting> <laughs> feed me all night long. I can't anyway. say Carrington like that. I have to say Carrington. <laughs> Carrington. <laughs> <laughs> It's like watching fucking Dynasty and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Were you scared while watching the thing for another world? Not at all. Yeah, I wasn't either. I was no. kind of bored, actually. Yeah, but like I said, um,
1: you know, there's a lot of people that say this is the scariest movie that they had watched as kids. You know, of its time. And in an interview on National Public Radio's Fresh Air with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, when asked about the most scared they'd ever been at the movies. Roger Ebert indicated that this film scared him to death especially the scene where they incinerated the thing. I
2: can see that from a from a, you know a, a a past standpoint, yeah. right? I mean, I can totally understand why people would be terrified. Shit like that just movie. wasn't on the, in the movies and wasn't no. on TV. And it is kind of scary, but I'm more scared watching this now at that particular moment about the actors involved. Like yeah. I'm terrified for those people in peril, you know? And I'm like, "Eesh." But the There's movie, a fire, a scram. <laughs> the movie itself is just not very frightening and f- for the reasons that we have, you know, like talked about already in this episode, like it's not a very tense movie. They, they don't really succeed in putting these people in any kind of danger and no one really looks like they're in danger. They just look like they're ready to like leave the outpost and that's it. Yeah. You know? I think that plays a big part in it. If your characters are not terrified, I'm not going to be terrified either. Yeah. And that's just it. So um, out of five stars, what would you rate The Thing from Another World? I gave it three stars. I also gave it three stars. Enjoyable, but not
1: especially good or great.
2: Yes. Very middle of the road. I think I gave it three stars just because I can realize its importance, you know, and like the world of cinema itself. And it's interesting to watch from like what people considered really good and really scary back in the day. And
1: it's just like an interesting, I was never like flat out bored. Because even the moments that nothing's happening, something is fu- is uh, funny enough from today's standpoint. <laughs> so if you're going to watch it, like, watch it with a friend and just, like, make fun of it in those, yeah. like, those quieter moments where they're just asking people for coffee, you
2: know? I mean, at one point I called the character a whore, I think. I mean, like, I just – I don't know. I mean, like, we were, we were having banter, you know, while watching this movie. And that's just not always a good thing for the film, you know? But – um it's good for us. <laughs> Hell yeah. But, I mean, overall, I – I don't know. This movie could have been better for sure. So I think three stars is pretty fucking generous. Yeah. Actually. So finally, who's the hottest guy in the thing from another world? (laughs) Oh, you know, it's our favorite guy. It's our flamey crew chief. Yeah. (laughs) Bob. Flamer Bob. Yeah. But what was his name? Uh, Dewey Martin. Dewey? Is the actor's yeah, name. That's right. He was kind of Dewey dewy. Martin. Like, I don't know. He was he was cute. and Got his little sweater action going on.
1: He, yeah,
2: He's the one who came up with all the brilliant ideas that never killed the alien until the very end. You know, he didn't die until t- 2018. Really? He was 94. Who else has he been in? I should look him up. At any rate, clearly, I guess the captain is kind of kind of hot. I mean, in a macho... I don't want to talk to you kind of way. Oh my god, he was married to Peggy Lee? What? <laughs> Flamer Bob? Yes. <laughs> he was
1: married to Peggy Lee from
2: 1956 to 1958. <laughs> Those two glorious years. <laughs> Random. That's another fun fact. Yeah. Oh my god. All right, well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on The Thing from Another World. As always, we would like to know if you have seen this movie, what you think about it, what you thought about our conversation about it. Definitely, if you've read the book. Uh, You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. You can email us
1: at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at
2: 972-666-7733.
1: Mmm, scram my Betty.
2: Oh, that's a
1: big carrot. It's a big, silky carrot. It's a big, stinky
2: carrot. (laughs) (laughs) Like we've talked about several times in this episode. Coffee? (laughs) Yes, please. you wake me up for that Uh, we have more conversations about the thing or various versions of who goes there next week join us when Chris and I finally talk about John Carpenter's 1982 opus the thing opus I think it's his best movie I think so too yeah So, we'll get into that, too. We've already gushed about John Carpenter on other episodes, but I'm really about to, like, lay it on thick, so y'all get ready for that shit. Okay. Um, And, like we mentioned, over on Patreon, we're going to be covering the 22,000-whatever-remake-prequel- Thing, the thing. <laughs> so if I can't make that sound any more exciting, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. Join the family. You can find that bonus episode and more than 70 other ones. And uh, we look forward to seeing you there. That's right. I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> the look, fuck you it's say? It's not It's <laughs> <laughs> a three <laughs> <great> star. <laughs> the only good thing about it is Mary Elizabeth Winstead. <gasps> I love her. I know me too. She's the only thing that saves that movie. Generally, if you have three names, I like Look, <laughs> <Like> serial killers. <laughs> Guys, we also need some reviews. So please head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Leave us a five star review. Tell us why you like us. And we'll read that on the next Shooting the Flames. And it will end our drought, our winter drought of review. Well, Robert,
1: I'm going to get woken up three hours before my morning coffee to have coffee. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll make sure to do that. <laughs> I need to have some sweet dreams. dreams. I really am. Tomorrow, I'm gonna like knock on your door and be like, coffee? And it'll be like 4.30. 30. If we're morning. on a trip
1: <laughs> and we're on like a 10 hour fucking plane ride and you wake me up three hours before we land for coffee, we'll throw that coffee right in your face.
2: And I would take it. I will tell you to scram, <laughs> Betty. <laughs> and you would take it. <laughs> You're gonna take that coffee? <laughs> we've been on trips. I don't wake you up. <laughs> I enjoy my quiet time with my own coffee. I like my I like my coffee privately. <laughs>
0: I was walking down the beach one bright and sunny day. I saw a great big wooden box afloatin' in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up and much to my surprise. Ooh, I discovered a... Right before my eyes. Ooh, I discovered a right before my eyes. I picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king. I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything. But this is what he hollered at me as I walked in his shop. Oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop. Oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop. I turned around and got right out of running for my life. And then I took it home with me to give it to my wife. But this is what she hollered at me as I walked in the door Oh, get out of here with that And don't come back no more Oh, get out of here with that And don't come back no more I wandered all around the town until I chanced to meet A hobo who was looking for a handout on the street He said he'd take most any old thing. He was a desperate man. But when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. Oh, when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. I wandered on for many years, a victim of my fate. Until one day I came upon St. Peter at the gate. And when I tried to take it inside, he told me where to go. Get out of here with that... And take it down below. Oh, get out of here with that... And take it down below. The moral of the story is if you're out on the beach and you should see a great big box and it's within your reach, don't ever stop and open it up. That's my advice to you because you'll never get rid of them no matter what you do. Oh, you'll never get rid of them no matter what you do.